on Wednesday, April the 3rd, 1968, I was born. But more importantly, about five hours after I was born, Martin Luther King Jr. climbed into the podium at an assembly in Memphis, what ended up to be his last speech before he was assassinated. He kind of knew, he kind of had a premonition that it was close. He was there in Memphis because of the inequity um, that the black sanitation workers were experiencing. They were making half the pay of the white sanitation workers and they were getting less time off. And that particular morning, his plane had been delayed because of, of bomb threats. And so there had been many death threats against Martin Luther King Jr. And that night, in his famous um, mountaintop speech, here were his final words, quite ominous, that kind of speaks to the reality he knew that his time was short. He says, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't really matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The following day, less than 24 hours later, uh, he stepped out onto the balcony of the Lorraine Motel as he was waiting for his colleagues to get dressed so they could go to eat. And he was assassinated. Now, if he had known that he was about to be shot, Martin Luther King Jr. would not have stepped out onto that balcony. He would have avoided being killed, okay? But even though he had this premonition, he would have avoided it. Abraham Lincoln, though, had no premonition about it. In fact, if he had known that he was about to be assassinated, he would not have allowed his bodyguard to go next door for drinks while he and Mrs. Lincoln watched the play. But on April the 15th, 1865, because his bodyguard was not there to protect him, John Wilkes Booth was able to sneak up behind and assassinate him. What King and Lincoln have in common is that had they known what was going to happen, they would have taken the preventative measures to ensure that they were not killed. And then there's Jesus. Not only did he know that he was going to be put to death. He had prophesied it many times throughout his three years. In fact, Luke tells us he set his face towards Jerusalem. What does that tell us? He set his face to the cross. Indeed, Jesus was not assassinated. Jesus was not a victim. He wasn't a martyr. He gave his life as a sacrifice, as a ransom for many, as the Scripture tells us. Now, we have seen in the Gospel of Luke, and we are coming to the end of Luke, uh, we have seen Jesus perform 21 miracles, okay? And those miracles are important. 
They speak to the reality that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Only the Son of God would have had the authority and the power to perform the miracles that he performed. Furthermore, these miracles signaled that the kingdom uh, that was prophesied by the prophets, the day of the Lord that was prophesied by the prophets was here in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, those uh, miracles speak to something of the reality of the day when the whole world uh, has come under the dominion of our Lord Jesus Christ. When every foe has been vanquished and, and Christ is deemed Lord over a new heaven and a new earth, these miracles speak to that day. They point to that day. And finally, these miracles speak to the reality of His compassion and His mercy over the brokenness of a sin-stained world. Yes, the miracles are important, but they're only signposts. The heart of the Gospels is not the miracles that Jesus performed. The heart of the Gospels is the cross. In fact, the Latin word for cross is the word crux, C-R-U-X. It's related to our English word crucial. Indeed, the cross is crucial. It is fundamental to the Christian faith. Because in the cross event, God is able to remain true to himself and judge sin. Isn't it good when a just judge judges crimes? God was able to remain true to himself and judge sin and yet at the same time save the sinner. That's why the cross is crucial to the Christian faith. And that's why Matthew devotes 33% of his book. Mark devotes 37%. John, 42%. And Luke, 25%. That is one quarter of his book to the Passion Week. The last week of Jesus' life. The week that is centered on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love what Octavius Winslow said about the cross. I'd love to share it with you, just a few of these words. The cross of Jesus displays the most awful exhibition of God's hatred of sin and at the same time His readiness to pardon it. Isn't that beautiful? Pardon, full and free, is written out in every drop of blood that is seen is proclaimed in every groan that is heard. O blessed door of return, open and never shut to the wanderer from God. How glorious, how free, how accessible. Here the sinful, the vile, the guilty, the unworthy may come. All are welcome here. The death of Jesus was the opening and the emptying of the full heart of God and when we behold and it takes the spirit to behold this okay we are so sinful we are spiritually dull we are spiritually blind we're spiritually deaf to the glory of God but when we behold what Octavius Winslow describes as the full heart of God in the cross it changes us it absolutely changes us, it activates us, it motivates, it incites our dull 
and listless and bored hearts. Indeed, it provokes us to faith working through love. How do you know that you've been stirred rightly by the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ? You are provoked to faith working through love. Your life is a life of worship to the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And as we come to our text today, we see a man, Joseph of Arimathea, who has been provoked by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. Scholars don't know exactly where that town is. It really isn't important. He was a member of the council, that is the Sanhedrin, okay? It's the most powerful council, the most powerful group in the world of the Jews. A good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision, that is the Sanhedrin, he had not consented to their decision in action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. We don't know anything about Joseph of Arimathea except what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us here. All four Gospels pick up this little narrative about Joseph. If they had not done that, we would know nothing else about him. It kind of reminds us that most believers who do great acts of faith and devotion and love for the Lord Jesus, we've never heard of. It should remind you that if no one is noticing you, if no one uh, really understands the, the kind of sacrifice you make for the sake of Jesus, that's, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We, would, we wouldn't know anything about Joseph had it not been for this short little uh, narrative. Now, one thing we do know from John's account, though, up until this moment, Joseph was not a bold believer. In fact, in John 19, verse 38... It says, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He feared the Jews. He feared man. And as a result, he was an undercover disciple. Okay? Now, I think that's important because I think when we read that, if we're honest, most of us are looking in the mirror. This man was a secret believer. No one knew it. He hadn't gone public because he was a leader in the Sanhedrin and he feared the ramifications of what would happen if he went public. But now, in light of the cross, Joseph is publicly identifying himself with his Savior reminds us that if you're a true believer, if you're a true believer today, God is too jealous for His Son's glory in your life to allow you to continue to sit on it, to allow you to continue to be anonymous in your faith. Here's a man, that, even though he's a believer, 
there were some things that he cherished more than the name and the fame of his Savior. He esteemed his reputation more. He esteemed his job, his rank, his promotion. All of these things uh, he esteemed more than the name and the glory of our Lord Jesus. But now in light of the cross, something has changed. This man has been, he's, he's being changed before our very eyes. And so if you are a, let's just say, an anonymous Christian today, uh, an undercover Christian, a secret believer, because you're too concerned about what those around you will think or you're concerned about what it will do for you professionally, what it could do for you uh, in your world. Let me just tell you, God's not going to allow you to stay in that place. He loves His Son's glory. The Spirit came to glorify the Son. He will get His glory in your life. At some point, a situation is going to arise that's going to force you to go public with your faith. And that's where Joseph is at this point. He's progressing in his faith before our very eyes. And, and, and it's at great personal risk, I might add. It's at great personal cost. You see, the Father's compassion in Jesus Christ um, is, is changing him. It's changing him from the self-protective man. That's why you would be secret in your faith, by the way. You're self-protective. You're, you're holding on to something that's more important to you than Jesus. And he is being changed from this self-protective man to this Savior-praising man before our very eyes. And it's all because of the Father's compassion, the grace of God in Christ that is stirring him. Understand, we need to understand this. It is so natural for us as, center, as sinners to, um, to love and protect ourselves, okay, and our interest above everything else, even at the expense of others. That's the natural thing. What is unnatural is agape love. What is agape love? It's, it's cruciform love. It's, it's love in the shape of a cross. It's loving. It's, it's paying the cost that is necessary for the good of another. That's what agape love is. And this is supernatural love. In fact, um, it is such uh, that uh, one man named Reinhold Niebuhr in the mid-20th century, a, a neo-Orthodox theologian from Germany said that that love can't exist in this present world. Uh, agape love, it's that idea cannot exist. That belongs to another age. That belongs to another time. And I would submit to, to you this morning that in a very uh, real way that Niebuhr would not or could not understand because of his theology, that kind of love does belong to another age. But that age is erupting into this present age before our very eyes through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the age of agape love. An age described as one of love and mercy and compassion. God the Father's compassion is coming to us through a cross. And it's changing this man from the inside out. The late Christian author Joe Badley. Um, once told the story of his teenage son who had rebelled against him and rebelled against 
his family, and rebelled against God. And so this teenage son in the hippie days, the days of the hippie movement, left home and he went to, to live uh, in this place where all these hippies and these druggies lived in this large room. A flop house is what they were called. And it was at uh, the great grief of Joe Bailey and his family that he did this. One night, Joe got a call. He was living in Chicago. And he was told that his son had been arrested. And so he went down to the Chicago station, the police station. And there was no record of his son. And so he went searching at all the different stations in Chicago looking for his son. And he determined that it had been a prank. But he knew a flop house where he thought his son might be. And so at 2 a.m. in the morning, uh, Joe Bailey goes down to this flop house. And he's stepping over bodies. And he finally comes to his son who's laying there asleep in the floor and he bends down and he kisses his son on the cheek with tears flowing and at the time Joe Bailey told this story his son was a pastor and his son the pastor told him later dad do you know what turned me around and Bailey said no He said, it was the night you came into my room and kissed me. He said, you thought that I was asleep, but I wasn't. And I thought, if my dad, my father loves me that much, I had better get my life right with God. The cross is the day the Father kisses us. Understand that. At the expense of the Son of God. The cross is is the greatest display of the Father's affection. Because in the cross, He is providing sinners like us who don't even love Him. He is providing us a way back to Eden. He's providing a way back to the sanctuary. He's providing us a way back to Him. The Father's compassion in the cross. And Joseph's reaction demonstrates he has been stirred, he has been changed. In fact, this text gives us five overarching uh, realities about this man, Joseph, that I think are very instructive. Keep in mind, when we look at examples of people uh, in the Bible, examples of faith, these are people who are to be emulated only because they've been changed They've been stirred by the Father's compassion in Jesus Christ, the Savior. And the first thing we see here in this passage, he was a good and righteous man. That's exactly how the text describes him. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. There may be unbelievers here this morning. I suspect that there is. And let me just share this with you with all love. There is no category in the Bible for a good and righteous unbeliever. That doesn't exist. Now that's not to say there aren't noble and moral unbelievers, okay? In fact, I'm reading the, the, the definitive biography on Winston Churchill. There's no evidence up to this point that he was ever converted to Christ. But he was as good and noble a person as you can find by common grace. But when we talk about goodness and righteousness biblically, we can't lower the bar of what the Bible says about it, okay? 
Keep in mind, we were created as the image of God. And our purpose as the image of God is to image God, to magnify His glory like a telescope magnifies the glory of a distant planet. Okay? That's our purpose. When you hijack that purpose for another glory, a lesser glory, trust me, that's not good. That's not righteous. No matter how noble it may appear in the city of man, it is an insurrection. It is rebellion against the king. So there is no biblical uh, notion of a good and righteous unbeliever. In fact, when you put these two words together, what we're seeing in this man is an unswerving commitment to uphold the worth of God's glory in his life. That's what it means to be good and righteous. The unswerving commitment to uphold the worth of God's glory in his life. He was a good and righteous man. But secondly, notice as well, he was convictional. Look at the first part of verse 51. He had not consented to their decision and action. Do you realize how costly that would have been? He's going against the grain of his very party. He's a leader in the Sanhedrin and he is not consenting on what they're doing. This could cost him everything. It could cost him his career. It could cost him his profession that he had worked his entire life to obtain. He was a man of conviction. When was the last time you did something out of gospel conviction? Willing to pay the price, willing to pay the cost. This man was no longer a secret Christian. He was convictional. Thirdly, he was kingdom focused. Notice the second part of verse 51. It says, uh, he was looking for the kingdom of God. In fact, that word looking is the same verb. It's only found twice in Luke. It's found in Luke 2.25 where it says, Simeon was waiting in the temple, waiting... You can translate it that way. Waiting, looking for the consolation of Israel. Luke expects us to be able to connect the dots. It's the same reality. Looking, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Looking, waiting for the kingdom of God is the same thing. It's Luke's way of saying this man was a believer. Okay? You see, the kingdom of God was the hope. And now he is seeing in Jesus... That the king of this kingdom is here. I mean, you think about the Bible. It can really be outlined and interpreted through a kingdom lens. We see a, a pattern of the kingdom in the Garden of Eden. You have God's people, Adam and Eve, under God's rule, in God's place, the sanctuary of God. And then you have what amounts to be the perishing of the kingdom. Uh, Adam and Eve go AWOL, they sin against God, and, and now there's no longer God's people under God's rule in God's place. But then in Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, you have the promise of a future kingdom. He says, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Then in David, the Davidic king from the tribe of Judah, you have a picture of this kingdom. He's extended the borders of Can or Canaan, uh, the land flowing with milk and honey, a land that harkens back to the Garden of Eden itself. He is God's king ruling over God's people in God's place. 
And then you have in the prophets the prophesying of the future kingdom. They are promising a day that will come when the true king will come. The true king, the branch from David, the stem from the stump of Jesse, endowed with the Spirit of God, who will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And now in Jesus, we have the presence of this kingdom. And this man, Joseph, knew that. He believed that. He was looking for the kingdom. And now he is devoting himself to Jesus because he sees that he is that king. You know, kingdom focus is the mark of a believer. You can make a profession of faith, but the fact is um, you can't have two kings. Either the king of the kingdom of God will rule you or you have an idol king, a false messiah that rules you. Okay? And the mark of a believer is that you live in light of his rule. Now, let me just say this as a side. When... Uh, some earthly kingdom is your kingdom. And typically when the earthly kingdom is your kingdom, you're the king of that kingdom. The reason you get frustrated and the reason you get uh, discouraged or anxious is because something is in the way, something is serving as an obstacle to your kingdom. And that's why you get so bent out of shape. Okay, and now when when the earthly kingdom is your kingdom and you are the king of this kingdom, it, you don't love people with agape love. You use people. You see them as instruments to promote your kingdom cause or you see them as obstacles who are getting in the way of your kingdom cause. And that's why you slander. That's why you gossip. That's why you covet. That's why you're jealous. But when Jesus is your king, okay, it changes everything. You're no longer uh, concerned about self-protection. We see this with Joseph. He's no longer concerned about his, his, his job. He's no longer concerned about his reputation. He just wants to please. He wants to worship. He wants to uh, serve his king. And so we see that he is kingdom focused. But not only that, we see he is courageous. Now, where do I find that? Well, if you look... In Mark chapter 15, in Mark chapter 15, uh, in Mark's account of what's going on here, notice in verse 43, it says that Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate. It took courage for him to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. Now, why did it take courage? Well, he was asking for the body of a man who had been executed as an enemy of Rome. And you add to that the fact that Roman law, um, in Roman law, those who were condemned to death by the cross had lost the right to a proper burial. And here this man was going to Pilate asking for his body so that he could properly bury him. And on top of that, Pilate hated the Jews. And he certainly hated those on the Sanhedrin. This man was on the Sanhedrin. And yet now, Joseph is openly professing Jesus before this man. Indeed, before the entire world. And it also would have taken courage before the Sanhedrin. In fact, again, in John's account, um, 
or John 12, uh, John tells us about uh, something of the Jews. It says they feared the Jews because they would kick them out of the synagogues. It says, the, but for fear of the Jews, they did not confess it, that is what they believed, so that they would now not be put out of the synagogues. So here's a man who's taking great risk, risk before Pilate, risk before the Sanhedrin. And this is a message to us. It's a message to those of us who have undercover Christian syndrome. How do you know if you have undercover Christian syndrome? When was the last time you shared your faith? When was the last time you evangelized a lost person? If you don't remember, those are warning signs. What you're saying is, there, are, there is something in my life that's more important to me than Jesus' glory and this person's soul. Or maybe you're signaling you don't really believe that when a person dies outside of Christ, he or she will spend eternity in a place called hell. Okay? But the fact is, if you do not share your faith, and it goes beyond just inviting someone to church. That's a noble thing. Praise God we invite people to church, but that's not sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel is telling someone lovingly that God is holy and He will judge sin and you're a sinner. And if you do not take the provision God has made for sin, Jesus Christ, and repent of your sins and believe in what Jesus has done for sinners by dying on the cross you will spend eternity in hell. That's sharing the gospel. But you must repent and believe. When was the last time you shared that with someone? If that's not the case in your life, you're an undercover Christian. This man is teaching us about coming public. Fifthly, he, we see costly devotion in this man. Notice verse 53. Then he took it down and wrapped it talking about the body there he wrapped it in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone this man wasn't trained to take down bodies from a cross you can only envision the the kind of work and complexities there but he took it down the bought the corpse where no one and he laid it there where no one had ever yet been laid you think about how costly it would have been for joseph it would have cost him his money it would have cost him his reputation. He is publicly identifying with a convicted criminal. At least that was the perception that he was a criminal. And it well could have cost him his career. Joseph is going from a private believer to a public believer before our very eyes. And this matters to us because we are prone to that private kind of faith. And Joseph would tell you, yes, you're... Your faith is an individual, it's a personal matter, but it is also a public issue as well. Private faith not only eclipses the glory of God in Christ, it costs those around you, perhaps even eternally. Think about how the, the number of opportunities Joseph had missed all those years in his private faith. Don Whitney, one of my colleagues at the school, has written about a man, uh, a young man who was converted at a, at a revival, at a crusade in the Northwest. 
And, and so he could not wait to get back to, to work the following Monday because he wanted to share it with his boss. And so he goes into the boss's office and he tells the boss, I've been converted to Jesus Christ. And the boss responded by saying, That's great. I'm a Christian too. And I've been praying for your salvation for years. And the young man who'd just been converted was disturbed in his soul by that. And he said to his boss, why didn't you ever tell me? You were the very reason I've not been interested in the gospel all these years. Of course, that really perplexed his boss. His boss responded, how can that be? I've done my very best to live the Christian life around you. And the young Christian looked at his boss he responded, that's the point. You lived such a model life without telling me that it was Jesus Christ who made the difference. I convinced myself that if you could live such a good and happy life without Christ, then I could do so as well. You see, if you're living that Christian life around the lost and you're not sharing the gospel with them, you're doing them damage. It is a disservice to the lost people around you besides the fact that it eclipses God's glory in Jesus Christ. And that's what makes Joseph's testimony to us so important. The Spirit of God wants you to read and, and behold the change that's taking bef- before this man and in this man and be changed by it. Do you realize if the 200 people, the 180 people here today were to get active in their faith, we would be having baptisms every week. And one of the reasons the baptism was dry is we have secret Christians. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. We must pray for the lost, but we must proclaim the gospel to the lost. And if you don't have a lost person that you're sharing with, ask the Lord today, provide me that opportunity. And if you don't feel equipped to share the gospel, come see us. We will teach you how to share the gospel with the lost. There's no place for secret Christians in the kingdom of God. And because of Joseph's willingness to go public, how many believers for the last 2,000 years have been emboldened to share their faith? How many? You see, it's one thing to profess faith here. That takes no courage whatsoever. Now, it takes courage in 60 countries. Now, to be a Christian and assemble as the people of God in 60 countries, that's costly. But it's not costly in Fisherville. It's another thing to profess your faith and go public and identify with the cross of Christ in your neighborhood. Perhaps even in your family. Or in the workplace where your boss may not give you the promotion that you know you deserve. And God the Holy Spirit wants us to say, that's okay. I should not be so ambitious to advance my career. Young people, I should not be so ambitious to be popular among the popular people. That I'm not willing to lay it all down for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason Joseph was able to do that, he'd been stirred and moved by the cross. Luke is writing this to Theophilus. Theophilus is a, is, a, is a Roman official. 
And very likely he would have had the temptation to remain silent. And Luke is saying, you cannot remain silent. Look at Joseph of Arimathea. And look at the impact he made because he went public. And he's writing this to Fisherville Church as well. Now, a word about this burial. We're running out of time. Deuteronomy chapter 21 speaks to this. This is the law. Now, it went against Roman custom. But this was the law of the Jews. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Mm, You think there's some prophecy there? You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Here's a man who was devoted to Jesus and committed to the law. Okay? And here's the Roman custom that a, a man who's crucified on a tree could be left there to rot and the, and the carrion could just eat it. The vultures could eat that corpse on the cross. That, that criminal did not deserve a proper burial. And here's a man who is torn between Roman custom that would cost him if he went against it and devotion to Jesus and love for the law of God. And Joseph recognizes that He could not bear the thought. And so he takes him down. He gets permission. He takes him down and he takes him to be buried. And as important as his example is, let me just say here, it's truly important that he be buried properly. You know, there's been uh, these theories through the ages that Jesus kind of swooned on the cross. Um, He just kind of fainted because of the pain and the suffering and when he was placed in the tomb, he, he just kind of um, was kind of revived. Well, the, the text is emphasizing to us, no, he was dead. Okay? He was a corpse. We'll see more of that next week, so we, will, we won't spend too much time there. But it's crucial that he be buried because the burial of Jesus is part of the gospel message. See, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. In fact, we know you're looking on Wednesday nights now at the Apostles' Creed, those famous words, He was crucified, He was buried. He was crucified, He, he died, And he was buried. And then you have in the great catechisms, like the Baptist catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism, speaking of his humiliation. His humiliation consists in his being born in that in a low condition, undergoing the miseries of this life, the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and remaining under the power of death for a time. The burial is crucial for the gospel message. And let me tell you why. Two reasons. First... Because the burial signified atonement has been made. Okay? He had to die. You see, an atonement, and that takes us back to Leviticus 16, you had two goats. One goat was slain, and the blood of the goat was sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, signifying that God had been propitiated for our sin. His anger had been satisfied. But then there was another goat. 
And the, the priest would take this goat and he would symbolically transfer the sins of the people onto this goat. And then he would banish that goat into the wilderness to expiate our guilt. Atonement involves propitiation and expiation. And the burial of Jesus signals that atonement has been made. And the reason we know atonement has been made is because he's raised from the grave. And so burial was crucial for atonement. It's crucial for resurrection, which we will speak more to in the next few weeks. And Joseph's devotion to us is, a, is, a, is an example. It's important to us on, on many different levels. And the burial itself is crucial to the gospel. But we're going to close here. Let me give you another reason why his devotion, his model is so important. Though the text doesn't say it, it appears that his boldness had an impact on the women. Notice verse 49 of last week. These very women had followed Jesus, but standing at a distance. At least they were there. That says more than for the disciples. But Luke seems to be indicating they should have done more. They were there, but they were standing at a distance. And we believe that 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 is a fulfillment of Psalm 38, verse 11. We looked at that last week, which was a negative thing. And all of a sudden, they see this man named Joseph who's risking everything by associating publicly with Jesus, and it has a profound impact on their action. They go from standing at a distance to publicly identifying with Jesus. The first man was provoked by the cross of Jesus and these women are provoked by the cross-bearing of Jesus' disciple. Look with me in verse 54. It was the day of preparation. That That is when the sun went down on Thursday night until the sun goes down on Friday evening. And the Sabbath was beginning. That's Friday evening. So they're running out of time. You can't do anything on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. The women who had come from him uh, had come with Jesus from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So they're following Joseph. So it appears that they have that, that this boldness that Joseph has conveyed has had an impact on them. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Once the Sabbath day began, they rested. They, had to, they would have to come on Sunday to finish what they started. Now, they'll be surprised when they get there. But that's another story for another day. I want to close here by, by saying, and I think this is crucial, that there is, a, I think, a direct link between Jesus' cross on Friday and the original creation account. In the original creation account, God created all things good. And after the sixth day, he rested on the Sabbath. Okay? He rested in his glory. But after he created everything good, Adam and Eve sinned. And creation and humanity came under a curse. Okay? Every problem you have in your life is, can be traced all the way back to that curse on humanity and on creation. Now you've got the true Adam. Jesus has already been traced back to Adam in Luke 3.38. This is the true Adam, the true Son of God. On the sixth day, the day that God created everything good, 
Jesus Christ in the span of six hours on the sixth day takes the curse that's on humanity and on creation. And after the curse, okay, after the wrath of God has been spent on this man and he breathed his last, he rests. He rests on the Sabbath. But he's not resting in his glory. He's resting in a tomb. Why? Because things are not the way they're supposed to be. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's table. Because that's not the end of the story.